book of Exodus is chapter 33 and verse 18. The subject tonight is God's sovereignty and God's glory. I want to just start with reading this request from a man who believed in a sovereign living God. And he made the most tremendous request that a person could possibly make out of the barrenness of his experience. He's akin to us. A man by the name of Moses goes to the only one that it'd be any use to go to if one dared hope to ever see God's glory. Since he knew he couldn't work it up himself, he couldn't manufacture it himself, he goes to the Lord God and said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. If any man ever sees God's glory or God in his glory, it'll have to be by God doing it. I want to face a problem with you, if I may. It's a problem for me, at least. In the matter of God's sovereignty, we're all detours to the men whom God was pleased to use in what we call the Reformation. And the Reformation, that awakening, that movement of the Sovereign Redeemer that went so far toward a recovery of Christianity in its fullness, that movement was characterized above all else by its fresh, not its new, but its fresh insistence on the present sovereignty and initiative, initiative of God. They, with a freshness and a vividness and a conviction that had well nigh been lost, came to experience the truth that it is God, a present God, not an absent monarch, who forgives and saves, that it's a present God who reveals truth and life, that God, a present living God, not somebody who made a visit, instituted some laws and went fishing, but a present living God is king and man is utterly dependent upon him every moment that he lives. And that present God demands obedience. Now this was nothing new as the content. The Roman church, the medieval church also taught that final salvation can come only from God. 
that without his grace it is impossible to see God. That God is the source as well as the goal of life. That God is the seeker as well as the salt. But the men God raised up and through whom this movement was born and grew, laid hold with a vividness of these truths, the vividness of which had been lost. What had been habitually believed became a matter of urgent conviction. And that's a desperate need of us. What had been taught as ancient and accepted doctrine was realized as vital experience. It was sobbed and agonized and strained and prayed and wrestled with the solemnity of an ever-present living God. He didn't come to believe it as a doctrine. He came to experience it as truth. That's the reason when he preached, men would reach up and grab a hold of the rafters of the joyous and hope that God would not cast them into hell now. Now, this is a problem that we face. When the sovereignty of God has been reduced to a code of laws of an ancient monarch, all the ideas connected with it at a time when this sovereignty was experienced as a living reality, all the ideas are lost. And that's the reason anybody's tempted to even speak on these things in the last few years. It's been the center of debate, made a million mistakes and everything else, because it's been a matter of debating doctrine against doctrine, a conception of one, one fellow's conception against another. We've lost the vitality of the truth that the sovereignty of God means the living action of an ever-present God upon whom men are utterly dependent every moment of their life. Now, if I can illustrate what I'm talking about, blessed men of God who've left us and heritage, men like Edwards and Hopkins and Whitfield and Finney and others knew the sovereignty of God as the present activity and the present initiative of the being on whom men are dependent every moment of their life. But in your reading of history, by the time you get to one of the great successors of these men whom I mentioned, a man by the name of Lyman Beecher, a leader of his day, he and his colleagues preached or seemed to believe in an absolute monarch who declared his will and recorded it in some laws and went back to heaven to let us work it out. One reason for the rebellion against absolute standards today in moral realms and everywhere else is that this generation knows nothing about the God 
of the law. We lost the sense of the presence of the God whose character is revealed by the law. And so men who have no conception of a living God feel free to throw the Ten Commandments out the window. Because we've isolated the law from the God of the law. Now, to live under the sovereignty of an absent monarch who just made some laws we expected to obey is to live not in relation to a divine being, but in obedience to law. And there you have mechanical obedience. There a living protest, like an undamned stream has been reduced to a petrified product. And in that way institutionalized faith has thus reduced the sovereignty of God to a law and his activity to faith. And so the divine determinism of an Edward becomes fatalism in his successor. deeply ingrained in this generation. You attack these truths that were vivid and little and 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 livid and warm blooded on yesterday. You're preaching them to people who don't have the slightest idea what on God's earth you talking about. It was to a living, active, ever-present God that Moses came and said, Show me thy glory. Show me the sovereignty of God is there. He'll have to show his glory. Nobody can help him. I think in Moses' heart was surely something of what must be in the heart of every child of God in these desperate days of crystallized doctrine and institutional Christianity and petrified laws. Everything except the dynamic life-giving stream of Christ Jesus alive. Surely, surely, if you witness anybody, you tried the public to preach. Surely, the agonizing cry of your heart is that in our days, for this is only the day, this is our only day, God Almighty might be pleased to unclasp his hands and reveal to this the fuddle religiously cocaine generation his glory.
the message that God tells the prophet Isaiah to cry. Cry! Cry! Lift up your voice and make a noise. What shall I cry? What shall I cry? Let's go up and down the land and say two things. All flesh is flesh. The whole shooting match shall just wind up in the grave. Strip men of every dependence on everything. Him them up, to Johnson says. And then say, Behold your God. Now this sovereign God that the prophets disappoint men too when he's whittled them down to where they walk a glimpse of the holy. That God to whom Moses went with a request Show me thy glory. That is the unknown God of fundamentalism, of liberalism, of the whole house. Us fundamentalists have got some creeds and some laws. The liberals have got some token dreams based on nothing. And this world's going to hell without a glimpse of the glory of God. The God of today was made for America. Instead of America being made for God. Our Christianity, Calvinistic, Armenian, if you want to use those terms, the whole outfit is deistic to the core. We are suffering now because we've got an absent monarch who made some laws and left us alone. The prayerlessness of your life and your church in this preacher emphasizes the fact that we just don't believe that God Almighty is alive and the acts today. This generation's never beheld its God, nor seen its glory. I'm trying to say this. Men and women have been awakened to the nakedness of themselves. Get a glimpse of the glory of God. That's how God saves men. They receive a deep conviction. Always multitudes are born into the kingdom of God. Whenever there comes this sense of the holy, this sense of the awesome presence of the Christ, holy living God, Read again, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. The heart of it is, he believes in a living God that actually held sinners in his hand and could drop them into the pit any moment. Yes. It wasn't a cool doctrine to be argued. It is a God 
food, life will be fired. That sense of the awesome holiness and presence of God stealing over the hearts of men. The fountains of the great deep in their hearts are broken up. Gone is the voice of the sinner, I've heard it till I think I'll go crazy, who end with the debate whether or not he'll patronize the Son of God by saying, Christ is nothing at my sad heart's door. Shall I let him in? Shall I bid him forever depart? Or shall I let him in? Instead of that blasphemous cry that every personal working, public preaching child of God hears until yesterday the soul in the pool of blood down the revelation and dip his heart in it again to keep from throwing up his hands in despair. Instead of that, we shall hear men and women. From them shall come the heart wrung sob. Depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath Forbear me, the chief of sinners, there. Oh, boy. When I've had a little taste of that, the only reason I didn't go to heaven is because my gallows kept me down. Oh, what's the good? I'd love to live five minutes when men. We're under the deep sense of their dependence on this living God. And you go around catching hold of the coattails of God's people saying, got just a minute, do you suppose that a fight holy God would show mercy to such as me. Show me thy glory. The old Puritan said that grace is glory begun and glory is grace completed. The Apostle Paul challenges us in a verse that challenges me more than any verse of Scripture just for me, when he said, according to the gospel, of the glory of the blessed God, which hath been entrusted to me. Although they didn't use whom I loved in the Lord. You didn't know him, but the man, some of the younger brethren, you knew him in the last two, three, four years of his life. An old warrior, saint of God. He used to say to me, Brother Barnard, sometimes I get a little weary, and I just want to fall in with what they call the gospel now. Everybody getting results except me, and everybody's 
Just having fine, just taking the kingdom by storm. Instead, I think they'll just get in their little texts and two free illustrations and leave out what we've been hearing about with these blessed men tonight. But then he said, I, I can't. A godly pastor said to me the other day, he said, Brother Barnes, why don't you just preach the simple gospel? said, you get into too much trouble. Raise hell to many places. And I said, I wish I could. Under God I do. But I think about this generation of men and women that have got saved and never have felt anything of the awesomeness of the presence of a holy God who holds them in their head and have never had a glimpse of the glory of the Redeemer. They're the result of this simple gospel that a man can get saved and never know it and lose it and never miss it. And somehow or another we ask God for grace in our blundering, stumbling ways to preach the gospel of the glory of God. For the gospel of the glory of God is the gospel of the grace of God. And the sovereign God reveals himself and his heart and his purpose through his Son only in a gospel that unfolds and manifests and placards his glory. God answered the request of Moses, but before he did, he took note of the fact that Moses couldn't see God's glory in all of its fullness. And he said, before I answer your request, he said that there's a rock over there, and he said there's a cleft in it. And he said, you see that over there and get in the cleft of the rock. And he said, when the glory passes by, he said, I'll let you see behind bars. That's all you say. That's the reason for the incarnation of Christ as a man. There was no hope for us to get any glimpse of the glory of God. Unless it was concealed in a man, the man Christ gave the glory of God. The sovereignty of God is manifest in the birds and the use of, in verse 19, he said, now you get over there on that rock and here, come now, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to placard my glory. I'm going to unveil my glory. I'm going to... I'm going to manifest my glory. I'm going to let you get a little glimpse of my glory. He said, I will make my goodness pass before thee. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
just a little glory. Fix you so you can't light for a solid moon. Ah, to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that's salvation. I want to look at this parade of God's glory. I think he says the same thing. I say, I think he says the same thing three different ways. Don't see my glory? Here it is. Watch me in action. As I will cause my goodness to pass before thee. I want to wait until you learn anything about the grace of God to watch God in action. Learn about the glory of God to watch him in action. Join the parade, Moses, hidden in that cleft of the rock, and I'll make all my goodness to pass before you. I think the same thing you said. How you do it? I'll proclaim. When will I ever learn that God does the preaching? He just uses our little mouth. Oh, he's not called us to go around electioneering and try to get some votes for us. Vote for him. He is still the one voice that can wake a dead sinner. And the glory of incarnation from top to bottom is that he has been pleased to let men share his voice through our voice. That's the greatest challenge that God's people are knowing anything about. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I'll speak gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I think that's saying the same thing three ways. There can be no goodness apart from the action of this Lord, for the name means authority. There can be no goodness and no mercy except that is it dispensed by a living hand, the living Lord from the throne. And so I don't know whether this is good theology or not, but you don't either. So listen to me as I approach this message very briefly now and just say three things. Oh, God, help us. The cry of this poor bumbling preacher's heart has been, and the older I get, the more keen it gets until sometimes I'm but God, I think I'll break with it. I wish I could be used of God in my little potato patch to restore the mercy of God to the place where it would be a source of wonder that he showed it to anybody. Especially me. Oh, the wonder of it all. Years since I got a letter from Brother E.W. Johnson, he's forgotten. And he said, Brother Barnes is tired of wrangling and so forth and so forth. He said, Do you know any group of people in America where a man could have some peace and fellowship and joy? I wrote him back, and he said, make me old Baptist, old primitive Baptist. How about them? I said, we got them seven different brands of the primitive Baptist, and then she them alone. So, uh, make us like us. 
Oh, just had to check the present company except that you have to have a co-bar and a deputy sheriff to have a business meeting now. They ain't safe otherwise. And I wrote him back that I didn't know where he could go, but if he could find the congregation been made up of people that obtained mercy. Be hard to do all you folks, and God ought to have shown you mercy. You're such a sweet little guy. You prayed so long, and you gave a dime to that beggar, and and you did this, and you did that, and you did that, and you told God he'd do this, you'd do that, and you made a bargain, and you're going to hell. But if we had a congregation made up of people who'd obtained much, they didn't have to start with, didn't have nothing to buy it with, and had no claim on it but a sovereign God who alone could do it out of the goodness of his own heart. Look down instead of opening up a hole and send you to hell without time to pack a suitcase, he shows redeeming, sovereign, gracious, saving mercy to a soul like us. Those people would be like those to whom the Apostle Peter wrote and said to you who have obtained like precious, precious. They'd obtained it. They'd obtained it. They didn't buy it. They obtained it. Since God is always the giver and man the receiver, they obtained it because God gave it. And the only one who can give something is the possessor and owner of it, and that's the sovereign God. Yes, since I got on train in Winston-Salem and... Monday at noon and went to Illinois. I had the flu. I closed the meeting Sunday night. The doctor gave me shots and everything. I was sick as a mule, but I pulled out. And Monday noon, I skedaddled up to evangelize the Yankees. And I got to this place there about noon Tuesday, and I was really sick. That flu bug had me. And the pastor met me at the train and Gracious bad, he began to apologize. It's Tuesday night. He said, Brother Barn, I feel awful bad. He said, We don't have much crowd tonight. He said, They hadn't something up the schoolhouse. Most of our folks be up there. They hadn't been there. They'd been somewhere else. And so I propped myself up and preached a little nice little sermon on Tuesday night. The handful of folks God couldn't tip out ahead with a crowbar. And I thought I didn't preach very good, but I must preach the corporate because. After I shook hands, two, three folks, I skied out and went back to bed because I was sick. And the chairman of the board deacon rushed out to the front, stood on the pulpit, and said, He's a false prophet. And said, We ought to run him out of town. And said, uh, said uh, And the pastor finally came, and that man said, I'll give you a check for $400. You get that preacher and send him home. I wish they'd have taken him up, but they didn't. And uh, I didn't know nothing about it. I took some dope and went to sleep, and the doctor came gave me a shot or two the next day, and I propped myself up and had about three, four more folks of the saints that slid out for Wednesday night, got back from the school, and I must have preached another wheel of a sermon. It was bound to have been powerful, because I was still sick, and I got out there as soon as I could and went back to bed, and I know the pastor, I remember the pastor said, I want to meet the deacons down in the basement as soon as the benediction. And so they benedicted, and the deacons went that way, and I went to bed. And I found out later the dear pastor 
I turned up his playhouse like McDonald. I held a meeting for him, and he w- he wouldn't go to the same place. I still don't know how to find that outfit, because he didn't want me to find out so I'd come back. And that guy, that pastor began to walk the floor and said, Oh, Brother Hubbard, I'm going to tear our church all pieces, brother. I must have been powerful to tear our church up in two nights, sick as I was. But he said, going to tear all the pieces. And uh, the Lord just wringed his hands and he asked Brother Bill Pickle, and he said, Go over that do something. And the sister spoon died and she agreed with him. And everybody agreed there's in a mess and they didn't hardly know how to get out of it till the king's an old white haired deacon. I've, I've had a few dear men like that stand the breach and, and, and got on it. And they got to him and he said, Now, boys, that's what he called. He said, Boys, he's praising you, Pastor. You better keep your hands off of that guy. He's preaching the gospel of a living sovereign Lord, and said, you ain't never heard it, because you've never seen it blow. And bless God, he quieted I didn't know a thing about this so fast. Well, Thursday night, the house was jam-packed. I told so that that's a big preacher. But what happened was, it got out all over town about how the next fire the preacher in this year, too, and how crazy he was. And a preacher Thursday night, and a preacher... Friday night and Saturday night, I didn't get to sleep. A fellow stood up, he'd been practicing about six weeks, but he made a mistake. And he began to sing in the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit used the song that had the gospel in it to explicate and interpret what I'd preached since I can't show anybody God's glory. The Holy Spirit had to do it, and he used the song. And the fellow stood up, he had it all practiced, and he forgot it, and he began to sing, Love, sent my Savior to die in my stead. Why does he love me so? Oh, the wonder that I can't create in anybody's heart. The Holy Spirit did in hearts that night. Meekless at Calvary's cross, he was led. Why? Why? Instead of this bargain basement gospel, this God's under obligation to do so and so, God got to give everybody a square deal the fair chance, and I don't believe God has been that way that I've been doing for 40 years. Oh, no, not that. But why should he love me? And the organist quit playing and began to scream, I'm alone! I'm alone! Down on the feet is the fact of what? And the pastor began to scream, Have mercy! Have mercy! Have mercy! Down on his face in the presence of the felt sense of a sovereign God who holds man in his hand. That deacon, the one that came there, he got saved. I think he did. There were seven Roman Catholics that had never been in the gospel service. They claimed to get saved. Looking down the sun's school, that's it. It's a sight on us. The next morning, the man who owned the biggest saloon in town came and interrupted his breakfast and threw down some tea. I hadn't said anything about a saloon, nothing there. 
Didn't know the madam go opposite, Pastor. Yes, you see, you locked that thing up. You'll never open it again. And that news spread all over the city. We had a little taste of God. Doing what only God can do. Melt in minutes and in down to the place of bankruptcy. To the place where he could open the skies in their eyes and reveal himself in Christ to send for me. Or if we could have the wonder of it, the soul. The second thought, desperately do we need to affirm over and over again that God shows his mercy in, not apart from, the son of his love. Mercy is not a great pool of mercy that a man can dip his dipper in at his convenience. But God shows his mercy in and through his enthroned Lord, that man in When have you heard anybody blessing God because he's God? All we know is Lord did this one, Lord did that one, Lord did that one. I wonder if I know anything about salvation. Oh, the mercy of God's in the hand. And that hand is, has a nail print in it. It's in the hands of a man. And that man's in glory. And there's no way on God's earth to experience his mercy, except he does what he says he does. Give. 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 Give unto them eternal life. Who does it? A creed noser. A living Lord. Where is it? He's on God's throne. Contact. Thy faith must be made not with a dead Christ, but an enthroned Lord. For he gives himself. He's the gift. And that's mercy. And then that expression... I do not know that I'm capable of talking about it. I'll make a stab on it. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Thou show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I, the longer I live, the sweeter that passage grows. I'm almost to the place when I can say now, thanks God for the blessed privilege of looking men in the face and telling them that God Almighty 
uh, stated, and he exercises that right, and he does it to show mercy upon whom he will. I'll tell you that's the widest application to be made of that. If the scripture said he showed mercy to the men who desired it, left alone of God, he'd never show mercy to anybody. The saddest, most pessimistic verse in the Bible is, he will not come unto me that you might have life. There's no hope there. That's just plain faith. That's just, that's just telling the truth about everybody from Adam down to the last man. Let a man get in a resting place like these people did in the scriptures. Or dig them a well and find the water in it satisfies them, whatever it is. And they never will, left alone of this sovereign spirit, come to faith. Thank God. There is a note of hope. No man can come unto me except the Father draw him. That shows the things. Open as wide as the heart and will of God. Now, oh, Puritans that we try to learn how to preach the gospel for and the two to go to, they talk so much about the freeness of the gospel. The wide openness. It's as wide as the heart of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And since he's the only one that can show faith and mercy, I'm glad it's left into his hands. I believe he'll do a better job of dispensing it than any of us could if we would or would if we could. It's the only alternative to what they call the gospel of this generation. If we suffer to save by living in a day when men feel no need of mercy. It is because for these years and years of years, mercy has been what God owes men, not what God gives men as he will. It's the alternative to a pay-as-you-go religion. It's the door of all hope. The offense of this has amazed me. The fact that I stand in pulpits calling to Baptist churches or to stand in a preacher church or congregational church, any of the churches that started at the burden go here in America. Every last one of them was founded in the sovereign displeasure of God. Yet I am preaching to their children. And they look me in the face and say, that's heresy. That's our problem. Just don't get mad about it, but our hearts need to be broken This is a desperately deceived generation. Hear me? I'm so glad it's in his hands. I couldn't produce a savior, thank God he could. I couldn't write a Bible, thank God he did. I couldn't show any man how to be holy, thank God he can. I haven't got any mercy to show anybody, do anybody good. I need all of it I can get from myself. Thank God. He said, I'll show mercy. I'll run it. I'll determine it. In the sun, to whom I will. There's a freedom there that enables us to preach and extend this 
and there she came, just sobbing like her heart would break. And she fell down the plush carpet on all fours and just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. I don't know where she got saved now. I don't want to get to glory. But after a while, she stood up and the Shekinah glory is on her face. You know, we're part of the what we look at, Susie put in her heart. And she got a glimpse of glory. The glory of God in the face of Christ is revealed by the Spirit and the Holy Gospel. And it still settled on her face. The tears were streaming down her cheeks, and I went up to her. And I said, How is it? And thank God she hadn't lived long enough to learn some theology. She pointed here, and she said, He's in here. I doubt not she told the truth. And I wondered what on earth that bunch of ossified, separated Baptists would do with a scarlet woman down there in front. What would they do with her? And I looked back, way back yonder, and the old 80 year old Mother Israel of the church, fries of spring, chicken, pink cheeks, and white hair, beautiful, godly woman. I knew whatever she did, everybody else would do. And I saw her take her glasses up on her forehead and wipe her eyes. Exactly as she came in a matronly walk, beautiful to behold, and she started walking, and then eight years old, she began to run, and she ran down there and took that once scarlet woman in her arms and planted a kiss on her cheeks and then on her mouth, and then with her arm about her, she turned to still painted, and the two of them faced that congregation, and the older lady said so everybody could hear her. Welcome, sister. Welcome, sister. Nobody but a God of all grace would act that way. Nobody but a God of all grace who manifested glory but acting that way would put the impact of himself on the countenance of that woman, make her white as snow. And sure it will give her a new start and a new heart and a song. That's God's glory in action. And those Canadians who can sing like none of us can, they began to sing. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, don't you wish we could sing it? Amazing grace, how great the sound that saved the wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, and the glory of God came. Fill the temple. If you just reveal the glory, you could walk in a little church building. I've done it. And he'd already got there. And the sinners come in, they'll be melted for the awesome sense of the presence of God. Candidates for the experience of his mercy. Amazing grace. We're going to stand and sing 
The song I love so well, pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.